0: Hello and welcome to this, your active conference. My name is Sean Goulding Carroll. I'm a journalist covering transport and environment issues, and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. Today's event is supported by the Advanced Biofuels Coalition, LSB, and is titled Accelerating Energy Independence and Emission Reductions, the Role of Advanced Biofuels in Transport. You're all very welcome, and thank you for joining me both here in our uh, studio in Brussels and to those of you viewing online. Just a note that this debate uh, will include questions from our viewers. So you're warmly encouraged to submit uh, questions through the chat if you're online. And if you're here in the room, you'll notice that there's a little uh, QR code through which you can access Slido. So if you scan that QR code, you uh, are warmly encouraged to submit your questions. Um, a second note, unfortunately MEP Eric Bergvist is unable to join us today. He sends his apologies, and we do look forward to hosting him on another occasion. Well, ladies and gentlemen, these are difficult times with the EU facing an energy crisis, a cost-of-living crisis, and a war on Europe's eastern flank. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has spurred the EU to push for greater energy independence, but getting rid of Russian fossil fuels is proving no easy feat. The move away from Russian gas and oil has prompted urgent questions as to how the EU's energy requirements can and should be met, and what the role of biofuels, particularly advanced biofuels, should be in meeting this demand. And of course, this is playing out in the midst of the ongoing climate crisis, which requires that Europe slash its carbon emissions. The environmental impact of the transport sector, a sector traditionally powered by fossil fuels and difficult to decarbonize, has come in for particular scrutiny from policymakers. Through its Fit for 55 climate laws package, the EU is aiming to chart a greener path for cars, trucks, planes, and ships. But are lawmakers on the right track themselves? And to what extent are advanced biofuels part of the solution? Well, we'll be discussing this and more during our debate today, but now uh, I'd like to introduce today's panelists. I'm delighted to be joined by Bernd Kupke, a policy officer specialized in decarbonization and sustainability of energy sources with the European Commission's DG Enner. Renew Group MEP Niels Torvalds, who is a member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee. Dr. Carlo Heimlik, a partner with the Amsterdam-based consultancy studio GearUp. Joining us online uh, from Norway, Anne-Marit Post-Melby, an industry officer with the Norwegian NGO Zero. And Marco Janhunen, the chair of the Advanced Biofuels Coalition, LSB, and public affairs director with UPM. Uh, You're all very welcome, and I'm delighted that so many of you could join me in person. It's been a while. Um, So to kick off, I will invite each panelist to provide a short opening statement, which will then be followed by a a Q&A session. Um, So firstly, I would like to give the floor to Bernd Kupker of the European Commission. Bernd, your opening statement, please.
1: Thanks a lot. Uh, I think I do not need to lose uh, a lot of words. Um, I think it's very clear that this crisis Europe is in has reminded us, um, yeah, on on our stark um, dependency on on fossil fuels. And the message of the Commission, how to deal with this, which um, was included in the Repower EU plan, is very clear. In the short term, we need to diversify our energy imports just to get out of the dependency from Russian Russian fossil fuel imports. However, we also have to um, promote energy efficiency and we have to invest massively in the production of of renewable energy to replace fossil energy sources. And obviously, all different sectors need different solutions. But um, one of the solutions, which is particularly valid in in transport, and there in particular in the maritime and the aviation fuels, are advanced biofuels. And here the Commission with its proposals for the Fit for 55 has made a comprehensive framework which is commanding the already existing framework to push for advanced biofuels with with, um, dedicated targets and now also with dedicated policy instruments for uh, the promotion of renewable fuels in aviation as well as as in the shipping sector. So we are confident that this will allow the the industry uh, to invest. Um, in in these technologies and to ramp up this, uh, these these um, sectors obviously always the devil is in the detail and one particular question always about renewables or biomass are the sustainability criteria uh, there we are we are convinced that sustainability is is key to um, to support uh, a long-term uh, policy which is also accepted everywhere and the commission has made um, yeah um, uh, a reasonable um, proposal. Now this is still uh, discussed, and this is also one of the issues which will be discussed in the, in the trilogues. We're still waiting for, for the parliament for its final um, position on this, but we are confident that this also um, can be fleshed out, and then we can, can go forward on, on, on this matter. And I think that's, that's all I, I need to say on this.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, now I'll give the floor to MEP Niels Torvalds for your opening statement.
2: Thank you. Well, my uh, colleague here on the right side said that the devil, devil is in the details. I'm probably the devil in this case because I'm I'm the rapporteur for the Envi uh, Committee on this issue, and we sat down yesterday evening to find some some uh, compromises for the vote in in strasbourg next week but just to give you an example of how difficult this is uh, a personal statement i drew down from uh, finland i started uh, out uh, friday uh, ther- thursday evening from from turku or to stockholm the last thing i did in turku was i tanked my diesel car with renewables. And then I drove through uh, Sweden, and I had the last tanking station for renewables in Helsingborg. And then driving through Germany on on Friday, when all the happy Germans were coming back from uh, vacations, uh, I couldn't tank renewables, because uh, that's not sort of the German policy they have for many reasons, thought that they can rely on, 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 on Russia for, for energy uh, uses, and that's, that wasn't true. If you go back to the Brundtland Commission, then the Brundtland Commission was the first uh, way of trying to, to find a solution for a very difficult, complicated problem. We have environmental climate challenges, we have economical challenges and we have social challenges and we actually should we should need to keep these three things in some sort of balance. That is not the case for the moment being. So uh, things related to renewables uh, and to biology, to biodiversity are heavily uh, ideologized in the, at least in the, in the in the parliament, and uh, sometimes I have a feeling that it's heavily uh, ideologized also uh, in the European Commission, not so much in the the DG energy, because they probably know that you need some kind of energy. But you have very heavy uh, ideological positions there. And there is one approach to biodiversity which is not actually addressed. Uh, not by the NGOs, not by DG, not, not by, by Envy in, in, in the commission. That's the species area relation. And that's actually an old scientific theory. There was a book, book published about the species area relationship already in the 60s. There is a lot of, of uh, liter- scientific literature on it. And what the species-area relationship actually says is, if you have an area, then inside this area you can have a certain amount of bio, uh, biotas, because that's, that's, they have to get some energy. And if the energy isn't there, then some of the biotas will die uh, beyond the brink of extinction. And if some biota, let's say, for instance, human beings, take too much space there then they will push out other uh, uh, biotas from, from the area. Uh, so we need to think how we square this issue, how, how we solve the, the issues in the long run. And uh, the ideological discussion going on in Europe, and not just in Europe, isn't actually helpful. And then all of a sudden, on the 24th of, of February, we have something uh, not coming actually out of the blue, if you, if you look at uh, Russia's policy for the last uh, 10, 15 years, I was a correspondent in, in Russia at the end of the 90s, so I have some knowledge about the system there. But if you look at uh, Putin's policies for the last, at least since 2007, you see that he actually ran into the same problem uh, his predecessor Gorbachev had, He tried to reform the system, but it's not easily reformable. And when it wasn't easily reformable, then he turned the more uh, aggressive. And that's where we are. So now we have ideological problem, we have a scientific problem, and we have a political problem with (coughs) with with Russia. And we need to find solutions, because if we don't find European solutions on these issues, then then the devil won't be in the details. The devil will be sort of taking over. And that's not an option for me. So that's probably my take on this issue in the very start.
0: Thank you very much indeed uh, for these thought-provoking remarks, uh, which we will certainly pick up during our wider discussion. Um, now I'll give the floor to Carlo Hemlink uh, for your opening remarks, please.
3: Thank you, Sean. Thank you all um, for having me. Um, and I can only echo what, uh, what Bernd has said, and also part of what, uh, what Nils has mentioned. We, uh, we do need uh, many uh, options for, um, for, for solving the climate problem in, uh, in transport. And um, so this debate today is about... Uh, is my, my mic okay? This debate today is about um, uh, advanced biofuels. And what we see is that advanced biofuels could play really a large role. Uh, they exist, <coughs> they can be scaled up easily. Um, the, uh, the technology has been developed over the past decades and is ready to be deployed and to be scaled up really. Uh, studies also show that uh, the, the feedstock potential for advanced biofuels is really large and possibly about a third of the current fossil fuels in transport could be replaced with advanced biofuels. But it's really, really big, and it could be done fast. But why is it not happening? It's because the industry is hesitant, I think, to invest in it. And the hesitance comes from from the past, and what they need to have is certainty for the future. And the certainty is not having a target just for 2030, and then the knowledge that that politicians are not too happy about it in general, but we will accept it until 2030. It's also not having a target that is just 2.2% which is slightly above the previous targets, and which is far below the potential that this could deliver. And uh, so we need to have a longer-term vision of how these fuels can contribute. I'm not sure if that needs to be a target, but we need to understand from politicians also, okay, what is the view in the longer-term in heavy transport, in shipping and aviation, because there, electrification is not going to be a, a solution easily. And uh, for the short term, we also need to make sure that um, permitting procedures can be shortened. uh, Because uh, it often takes too long to really scale up. So if we want to have advanced biofuels to be a solution for both um, against climate change and a solution also uh, in relation to energy security uh, for, for Europe, then I think we need to uh, roll it out faster, and we need to have a perspective for the industry that, they, that their investments would make sense. That's what I would like to contribute here.
0: Thank you very much indeed. and um, We'll pick up on many of those points. Now let's go uh, to Norway to uh, speak with our um, online participant, um, Amrit Postmelby of the Norwegian NGO Zero. Uh, you have the floor.
4: Thank you, and thank you for uh, the uh, invitation. I fully agree, of course, with the need to diversify uh, and go for all solutions. I just have to say I hear an echo of myself. Um, uh, And in our view, in zero, we need to prioritize the use of biomass for uh, areas where there are no or a few other renewable options. And in transport, the electrification is going rapidly. Uh, First half year of this year in Norway, 80% of new car sales was electric, um, and for commercial uh, vehicles and vans, uh, the shares are lower, somewhere between 20 uh, or 30. But, it's, but still, the electrification is going rapidly, even for ferries and buses, excavators. And we also see um, the domestic uh, short-distance aviation being electrified before 2040. Uh, but still, for longer-distance uh, and heavy transport, uh, we are uh, still needing a renewable fuel. And that is especially relevant for aviation and marine applications, where, of course, uh, uh, hydrogen and ammonia are big uh, a big topic in the shipping area in Norway and e-fuels in aviation, but uh, also uh, sustainable uh, biofuels. And as uh, was said uh, in the beginning here as well, sustainability is, of course, key. Um, and there was a, a couple of years prior to 2020 here in Norway where the market was flooded by crude palm oil biofuels. Uh, It was unintended from political side and it met massive opposition, both from the environmental NGOs and consumers. Um, And it also ended up uh, politically uh, stranded uh, or leveled the use and ambitions for uh, biofuels in transport. Um, So we are asking for stricter sustainability criteria in Ceros. One, we need sustainability criteria for all use of biomass not only transport and energy, but also material and food. And with that, we could also solve the indirect and counterfactual debates we're having on uh, the use of biomass today. And second, we need to close the door for uh, using biomass feedstocks with uh, high deforestation risk, no palm and no no soy. Um, And lastly, uh, we should also incentivize carbon removals from the production of uh, biofuels. Uh, the IPCC has shown that we are depending on removing carbon at large scale uh, to keep within both 1.5 and 2 degrees uh, warming. Um, and the IEA showed in its uh, net zero scenario uh, that more than 40% of the biogenic carbon being captured in 2030 comes from the production of uh, biofuels. So that's an area with uh, uh, possibilities.
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, now I would like to give the floor to Marco Jan Hoonen for your opening statement, please.
5: Thank you, Sean. Um, I'm here to represent um, the Advanced Biofuels Coalition, LSB. Uh, we are 11 companies from eight member states promoting since 10 years the uptake of um, advanced biofuels technology uh, and, and the markets, uh, meaning the mandates um, and related issues. Um, And I'm also representing UPM, which is a Finland-based forest industry company. And we operate Advanced Biofuels Biorefinery already since 2015. Um, I would maybe start by saying what really we try to concentrate on is is creating green growth, boosting uh, investments into creating the right framework in which we can become carbon neutral by 2050. And within this context, it's easy to say that advanced biofuels are kind of a no-brainer. We're talking about uh, increasing our uh, energy self-sufficiency. We are less dependent on Russian oil. There are no advanced biofuels to replace all of the fossil oil or the Russian oil. But let's use those means that we have. Uh, We are part of the circular economy. We are creating investments. Uh, and innovations, and these biorefineries are not only for biofuels, they are also for biochemicals, biomaterials, uh, for multiple end products and and really enabling to reduce emissions in the existing legacy fleet. So we're not against any other kind of way of reducing. It's uh, another complementary way of reducing emissions. What we call for is obviously two issues. It's uh, ambition and it's clarity of regulation. As was said before, what we need is more than a year of a directive that is in place. Uh, That is not the way we create green growth. That's not the way we create investment certainty. Um, And therefore, as in the as the co legislators have, have, have been now uh, increasing the targets, uh, the repower EU has increased, has proposed to increase targets uh, significantly. We, of course, are calling for increased mandates for the advanced biofuels. We see no reason why not. We can deliver certainly if uh, there is the certainty, and also uh, we see that the need for a mandate within the sustainable aviation fuels um, refuel aviation regulation. But the third point would be um, really on this issue of, um, of certainty. And if I go back the 10 years that advanced biofuels coalition has existed, and if I start counting how many months do we have when we were not in the process of either revising or anticipating the revision of the directive, that wouldn't leave too many months for me not to come to Brussels. Uh, and that's a, not a positive signal. I, I think if we really start analyzing that, most of the time we've been sitting around the table and discussing about revising, and we need a longer, longer term view. Another example is, is of the complexity, uh, is the fact that when we actually made uh, UPM investment decision in 2012, to invest a bit less than 200 million euros into a biorefinery, it would take me 10 minutes to explain the regulation. We have red, back then it was red one. Um, we have double counting, we have crude oil as, as a feedstock accepted. That's it. Today, I struggle to find somebody who can really explain me, and I try my best the complexity of these regulations. We have 10 plus directives that build the business case from refuel aviation to maritime to taxation to alternative fuels infrastructure. I could continue. I think the audience knows this. But this is something that we really need to reflect on. How do we create the space for investments in the long term?
0: Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, Just a reminder to our audience, both in the room and online, that you're warmly encouraged to submit any questions that you may have for our panelists. Um, So now let's move to our Q&A section of today's conference. Maybe we can actually take the point that you made, uh, Marco, about complexity, Um, this idea that for industry, it's very difficult to deal with this avalanche of regulation and so on. Um, Bernd, maybe I can ask you, what's your take on this this complaint that it's just too complex, this level of regulation?
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's a very old um, yeah, complaint that it's too complex. However, if you have very specific challenges, in particular if you have sustainability or if you have um, a very, very complex energy system as we have where we need different solutions and we need to address different um, challenges, then there is constantly also a call for... Um, first, to set a framework which then then allows investments. so and and if there's none, I mean I mean there are different um, we are always approached on this to to create more and I, I would say um, a, sp- a specific g- good regulation which is clear, helps investments overall. Obviously we are have the challenge that. Our environment is changing, so the the challenge of climate change, or the urgency of climate change at least, was not maybe in the mind of everyone uh, at at all times, and therefore we need to increase the level of ambition. And each time a new legislative uh, process is started, and in itself this leads to uncertainty because questions which have been settled. There's always a certain risk that these are then then reopened uh, in this discussion. But this, in in some extent, um, inevitable. But we try to to limit it, and we hope that that the next time we uh, we can have a, a framework which lasts a bit longer than than one year. This was also obviously a surprise for us. And I worked on the red two negotiation. I did not expect to to come back on this so so soon. But it is it was necessary because. The environment has changed.
0: Uh, thank you. Niels, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts as well.
2: Yeah, well, to go back to what uh, Marco said about uh, certainty and about the process of legislation, uh, I have to admit that uh, I think he's slightly on the right spot. If you look at what we have on the table and what's negotiated just these days, and uh, influencing the decisions of, of UPM or anybody. Uh, first of all, LULUCF, it's in the trial logs today. It's actually saying how, how much you can use of, of the sink. We have the red where we are uh, going to vote ne- uh, next week in Strasbourg with a compromise reading between the lines what uh, Marco just said. He doesn't really like the writing of it then we have uh, nature restoration coming up uh, we have uh, the taxonomy which is a mess as such because all of a sudden you speak about something which should be good and nice and clean and all of a sudden you have gas and and uh, uh, nuclear there uh, so I think we, we have created something which is uh, something uh, something of a, of a, of a monster uh and for politicians to navigate this monster or is is not very easy and i think the reason to this uh, monster being born is actually the triangle I, I mentioned before and all of a sudden the issue of biodiversity coming in and biodiversity became immensely uh, ideologicalized. uh and where you have a tendency, uh, and it's, uh, you have the tendency uh, in the commission almost every time, that one size is going to fit all. And that's not a very good uh, approach. So, when you look at biodiversity, you have different forms of biodiversity in every single member state. You have different forms of biodiversity, of course, in Europe. You have different forms of biodiversity all over the world. If you look at the hotspots, the biodiversity hotspots, I think we have one international biodiversity hotspot in Europe. But we are discussing the issue as if doomsday would be around the corner. And I must say, I find this, that's how politics is run, but I sometimes find this very stupid. We need to see that we have different need different approaches. I was in a debate on the same issue, I think, two or three weeks ago. And all of a sudden, an uh, environmental lawyer said that you can't expect from the European Union that we would take all the different member states into account, it, because it would be t- too difficult. And then I said, oh, oh shit. <laughs> uh, because if you aren't able to take the different circumstances into account, you are bound to make decisions that are going the wrong way.
0: Thank you. Um, Carlo, I believe you'd also like to comment on this.
3: Yeah, especially on uh, the biodiversity uh, aspect. I think it's, uh, it's of course been long in the biofuels uh, debate and uh, it's important. And uh, it's also for that reason that there is a very strict sustainability criteria already on the fuels that are being produced and put on the market. And on the other hand, at the feedstock side, you can have local regulations to safeguard the sustainability and and, and the biodiversity as well. So, I don't think this should be a problem because it's already manageable and there's very strict rules that you have to adhere to. And uh, within that rules, you can just ask the industry to provide as much as possible renewable fuels. Uh, Rather than the other way around and thinking, okay, these fuels could lead to these impacts and then let's close the doors to these options. Why I I would propose not to close the doors in the categories, not to close the doors to categories, but rather say these are strict criteria and everything that is put on the market, fossil fuels as well, have to adhere to these strict criteria. And um, I think now we see that biofuels have these strict criteria. But increasingly, are held responsible for uh, for impacts that happen in in other sectors that happen uh, when 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 waste and residues are being not being used anymore in other sectors. And um, while well, actually the regulation is quite good in biofuels, this should. Uh, and I think I heard it also in in what Burns Burns' opening stage uh, statement uh, that actually there will also be more uh, requirements being set to also other uh, sectors of the economy. And I think that's also a good, uh, good thing. But I, so in, in short, I think that we have the rules. Let's just increase the amount of renewable fuels and, uh, uh, and not the other way around.
5: Uh, Marco, I'll give you the chance to respond to what you've heard. Yeah, just quickly and maybe still on the issue of complexity. And, and, and my main concern with regard to that is that it's, it's uh, making it very difficult for smaller companies to enter this business. SMEs. I mean, big companies like UPM, we can handle um, these various requirements uh, relatively easily. But we're we're living out a a huge innovation potential, which is actually in the smaller companies, Um, and that that should be a major concern because a lot of innovations uh, de facto come from smaller companies than than the bigger ones. So this is an important point. But on the issue of sustainability, this is really. Why we are here? Why I'm? Why as part of the Advanced Biofuels Coalition? I mean, uh, sustainability is at the core of our operations. We have to be able to, every step of the way, uh, show uh, our customers, our stakeholders, our clients, uh, our uh, the regulators. And it is true. I mean, UPM is a good example. We have six big different uh, business areas, uh, from paper to pulp to timber to to label stock. If I compare the sustainability criteria and the requirements, they are completely in different stratosphere, um, which we have to take seriously, which we will comply with. And that's, that's really the, the basic requirement. Um, but there are, of course, limits to where you can take it uh, in order not to risk the future investments.
1: Um, Anne,
0: I'd like to bring you into the discussion, there's, um, just to pick up on a point that was made. Um, so there's often a charge that the discussion around biofuels is uh, driven by ideology more than science, and that some of the um, criticisms of biofuels are based on a, a sort of ideology. What do you make of this criticism? Is, our, is the opposition to biofuels more ideological than scientific?
4: no i don't really think so but biofuels is uh, one of the uh, harder climate solutions maybe uh, to discuss as uh, biofuels is not really just biofuels it's uh, many different feedstocks and very different value chains as well and uh, if you are um, uh, looking at it in a broader perspective we have come really quite far on biofuels because we have stringent uh, sustainability criteria that i course, things should uh, continue to um, evolve uh, to other sectors and be uh, even stricter. But we actually have uh, sustainability criteria that also uh, are third party, party verified. Uh, so um, I don't think it's ideological, but I think it's a harder debate because uh, it involves uh, so many different feedstocks and uh, uh, value chains.
0: OK, thank you. Um, I want to take a question uh, from the floor, which has come in on Slido. This is from Yeppe uh, Polsen. Apologies if I mispronounce your name. Um, it says, assuming strict sustainability criteria, isn't advanced biofuels a highly scarce resource only to be deployed when no alternatives are available? Um, any numbers on EU technical potentials and what demand can be met? Uh, maybe Carlo, I can ask you.
3: I, I think it's very clear that there is actually a very large potential of uh, waste and residues liquor cell loss of biomass that could be mobilized both in Europe and abroad and uh, a study by um, uh, Imperial College of uh, last year uh, showed I think some 150 mTOE of uh, of, of, of resources which could uh, no sorry uh, more than that, but it would deliver about 100 uh, MtOE of uh, of fuels, and those feedstocks in Europe uh, are all based on sustainable agricultural residues and forestry residues. Uh, so there is a very large potential there. And if you look at global studies, um, the yeah the the potential is is different between the different studies. Uh, there are very conservative studies that only focus on the on the waste and residues, and they come to still about one-sixth of the global energy supply, which is enormous. And if, if, if you would put that to use, if you have to put that to use, it could even be double the global energy uh, uh, use of this moment, but that would require really investments in, uh, in sustainable agriculture. So that's, that's actually not where uh, sustainability and potential would, uh, would, would, would clash with each other, you can only do it if you do it in a sustainable way. And I think we need to, to build that in as well, that we also have a better feedstock strategy to mobilize that feedstock that is available in Europe and abroad. And uh, uh, yeah, I, th- I think there is there's really a lot that can be mobilized. And if, if you have these strict sustainability requirements that, uh, that are referred to, then I think yeah, the industry will be able to comply with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Niels, I'll give you the floor.
2: Yeah, uh, just to, to come back to, to the reality. And that doesn't this comment doesn't mean that these guys aren't sort of coming from the reality. But if you go outside here in Brussels, uh, the house where I'm living, uh, there are uh, four apartments. Every, every apartment has a single burner. It's a catastrophic technological solution because the amount of CO2 coming out from every single flat in this in the, in the, in the capital of Europe is of a catastrophic amount but how do you change it if I would go to, to the 14 different uh, organizations in, in, in Brussels and say oh you need to have a, a district heating system they would throw me out through the, through the window from the fourth uh, 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 floor, uh, because it would be too costly. But if, when we speak about, about the amount of biofuels used in Brussels, or in the in, in, in Netherlands, or in France, for heating single apartments, we are speaking about huge amounts. And those amounts are outside this discussion. If you go to a small, small village in Lapland, Finland, they have a central uh, heating system, a district heating system. But that's not taken into account because the EU isn't able to take into account different circumstances. And this is actually eating the resources that Carlo was speaking about. And just to make things even worse. We had a very friendly discussion with DJ Envy, uh, Energy. Uh, it was certainly, I think, in December or November. And they, the signal we got from DJ en- uh, Energy, they didn't say it because they can't do it, is that we are slightly pushed aside. <laughs> and then two months, three months after they being pushed aside, because they didn't fit into this discussion. We have the war in Ukraine. And therefore, I said, we have lots of elephants in the rooms. And some other rooms are pretty close to this venue. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, I want to take another uh, question from the floor. Um, this one is from Joanna Granger, who works in the Australian Embassy. Um, Joanna writes, to reduce complexity in the legislation, could the framework move to an outcomes focus? That is, set the targets, objectives and sustainability criteria and then let industry work out how to deliver. This could offer flexibility and recognises no one size fits all. Uh, Bernd, what do you think of this comment?
1: Well, to some extent, we have such a framework. I mean, it depends on all different questions. Some, we are very... very um, Maybe never are, um, requirements, but generally, if you look at the Renewable Energy Directive, you have targets, you have even for re- overall a renewable target for the whole EU, which is then met with contributions on the different uh, member states, which takes into account the different situation of the, me- of the member states. And generally, in all aspects of energy we have flexibilities for the member states but some for some questions there is a kind of a harmonized standard um, in particular for for biofuels sustainability to have a kind of a common denominator that it also allows and trade of biofuels because otherwise every country would do um, its own sustainability criteria and then you would not be able to have a common european market of this so i think we're not so far away from that well, in detail, you can always differ in your assessment uh, where where we are, but I think that's generally the European approach. Okay. Thank you,
0: um, Marco. I'd actually like to ask you about a comment you made. So you've been critical of what you've described as a silver bullet approach uh, to policy making. Can you elaborate on what you mean by this?
5: Thanks. Well, I guess um, it relates to the fact that are we really um, Uh, operating with technology neutrality in our mind? Um, Are we looking for easy solutions uh, that are technology neutral, or are we we looking, you know, what is the perspective as well? Are we talking about, you know, how to do this in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, which is very different from how to do it now? Maybe two examples on this. Biofuels, whether first generation and and advanced biofuels and all the means that we have today uh, really are the solution in the 2020s and early 30s. Um, Even uh, if we have 50 million electric cars or 100 million electric cars by 2030 and and more and more along the way, uh, we will have the legacy fleet. We will have 150 or 200 million internal combustion engines. And are we with today's decisions ensuring that we will have sustainable fuels, renewable sustainable fuels, to replace fossils in the 2030s? With the ICE ban, we are obviously taking a risk of uh, not incentivizing the investments that would be supporting reducing emissions in those sectors in the 2030s. um, Because investments take time, there's a long leap time, etc. And maybe on the silver bullet policy, another example is though, I'm a big, I'm very excited about the Commission plans on on hydrogen, um, low carbon hydrogen, green hydrogen, uh, big opportunities for for industry. Uh, they are linked in many ways also to the production of uh, advanced biofuels. But we have a 2030 target today, which is discussed, uh, uh, which is massive. It's bigger than for advanced biofuels by far. Um, It's over 8 million tons. Today we have minimal production in reality. And we have 0% of the regulation ready to comply with the 2030 target. That is silver bullet policy. I mean, we don't have the framework conditions for me to go to the bosses in the company and say This is how we can invest. Again, it will be, well, here's the target that they've been discussing. But actually, we don't have the nitty-gritty details. And in today's world, if it hasn't become clear from my earlier interventions, it's the nitty-gritty that matters, that we really need to understand to be able to move forward with the investments.
0: Thank you. Um, Anne, I'd like to go to you. Um, Just on this question of technology neutrality, Uh, In policymaking. I mean obviously there's a lot of criticism that the um, approach taken towards road transport favors electrification over everything else. Um, Some are in favor of this, others are against it. I'd like to hear uh, your thoughts. Do you think that the move towards electrification is uh, problematic or do you think it's the right way to go?
4: I definitely think that is the right uh, way to go um it's the most energy efficient way to go and in norway we actually have a renewable uh, power system and we are actually also well on the way uh, of having um, a new car sales being uh, all renewable in 2025 uh, so uh, really early so i don't i don't believe technology technology neutrality is the way forward but still i fully agree on the silver uh, bullet approach that Markku is uh, explaining uh, we are not, and I wish we could be in a situation where we could just stand still, assess, uh, analyze and contemplate what climate solution is the best, but we are in no way in that situation anymore. The climate crisis isn't even around the corner it's right in front of our eyes. And the use of fossil fuels are so enormous that we, I'm I mean, no doubt that we need to go for all available climate solutions. Including sustainable biofuels, but still for the areas where electrification is uh, going slower.
0: Thank you very much. Um, maybe just a reminder: if you would like to submit a question and you're here in the room, please uh, scan the QR code and you can submit your question on Slido. <laughs> Thank you very much. If you don't have, there should be one on a chair next to you. Um, the the issue is with microphones, etc. Um, Carlo, I believe you also wanted to come in uh, on that point. I'll give you the floor.
3: I agree with Anna that uh, we should uh, try to close the tap on fossil fuels as soon as possible. And I think we've, uh, we've mentioned that for, uh, uh, for over a decade, if not 20 years. And uh, we didn't, and now somebody else is doing it for us. That's one thing. And uh, if we had done those investments uh, last year, maybe it seems that those investments in, in, in renewable fuel options would have been expensive. But I think in the light of today, uh, the cost price, the production cost price of of, uh, of advanced biofuels is basically lower than what we're paying at, uh, at pump for, for the fossil fuels. Of course, you will see also market dynamics. So I don't know how this plays out in, a scarce, in, in an environment where these fuels are still scarce. So the price will be high, but the production costs are low. And I would like to also react on uh, the statement of Anna on, uh, on on electric vehicles, and I think that is a, a highly deserved, highly desired uh, solution. So maybe also our next car will be an electric car, very well possible. But I live uh, in a house that also has a charging point next to it. I think the charging infrastructure for electric driving also has to improve greatly, and not just in Norway. I f- I, I believe that in Norway it works perfectly, and Germany and the Netherlands can also afford it but electric cars at the moment are very expensive still. And I don't know if it's also affordable for the citizens in, in South and East Europe. Uh, so that means, for me, I think, that we need to focus indeed on increasing the electrification of uh, passenger vehicles and that we need make, need to make it attractive. But at the same time, that's not a silver bullet. RFMBOs, e-fuels, are not a silver bullet. Advanced biofuels are not a silver bullet. There are no silver bullets, I agree with Marco, And we need to have all the solutions and we need to, yeah, basically increase the level of renewable fuels while closing the tap on fossil as soon as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I want to go to Bernd and then Niels, but Bernd, I'll give you the floor first.
1: Yes, maybe to come back on this question of technology neutrality. I mean, I think one needs to have a balanced approach there. If, if, If you're completely technology neutral, it means kind of you have no strategy. We also need to have a strategy, and if there is an understanding on, on, on how to achieve um, yeah, carbon neutrality in the long term, and it is clear that this is not just easily done, this is something which is very difficult. I think there needs to be some strategy under underlying the policies in which direction this goes. Otherwise, there's also not a good case for investments, because also such a strategy must to enable investments. And one example, for instance, that we have a sub-target for advanced biofuels. It's also not completely technology-neutral. I mean, obviously, you have different technologies to produce advanced biofuels, but you have this specific measure which takes into account that those are more expensive than maybe some other new uh, technologies, and that's the very reason. Uh, the same is for general transport, that we know that in certain sectors uh, electrification is the way to go, and and we need to direct it uh, in, in this... Um, direction.
2: Uh, Niels, I'll give you the point. <laughs> <coughs> at the beginning of this tar- term, uh, <coughs> some three and a half year ago almost, I tried to have a rational approach to all the problems we were seeing in, uh, at, at the horizon. And therefore, what Marco said about lead time for, for investments was uh, something very central in that thinking. <clears throat> My take on it was that an investment cycle uh, for a normal company is about 15 years. So from 2020 up to 2050, we would have two investment cycles. Then we might have smaller cycles be, uh, underneath when, when you are repairing or some new technology coming technology coming in. But in general terms, we saw at that time two investment cycles and we would have actually needed sort of a policy taking into account investment uh, cycles and doing a framework uh, for that. That didn't happen. Instead, uh, we are in a process, as was already pictured also, that we are doing it over and over again, sort of. Um, this is the third time I'm in, uh, during 10 years, I'm doing the, the, the RED, which is and, uh, a new RED, the RED fourth is around the corner because that actually came already from the commission. So we are doing things in a way which is not taking into account the, 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 the investment cycles. Then, yes, I think my next car will be uh, electrical, but I know that there are shortcomings. Uh, last year in December, I drew from Brussels to, 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 uh, to Stockholm and then to, to, to Finland. That happened to be during a day when you had a snow blizzard in, in Denmark and southern uh, Sweden. Uh, what happened with the electrical cars? They were stuck there. I had my diesel with renewables and I went steadily sort of on. And that's part of the reality. So, and when we, we know that we're going to have challenges also with electrification. Why? Because we don't see the, the materials for the batteries for more than, a, than the one generation in the front of us. So, yes, we know that we need to do something. But it's not very easy to do, do that, because there are going to be bottlenecks in the processes, and, and, and we have to be able to get through those bottlenecks, and that's not going to be very easy.
0: Thank you. Well, just looking at the time, I do want to talk about aviation as well, particularly refuel EU aviation. Um, before we do that, um, there is a question from the floor. This has the most uh, upvotes, and it's for you, Marco. Um, It's from Gabriele um, Tatian. Uh, It says, how does the increasing of biofuels mandates match with the Commission's recommendation to the member states to reduce the biofuels mandates in the context of food versus fuel
5: debate? That's a good question. Um, Advanced biofuels uh, that I'm representing in the Advanced Biofuels Coalition are made from waste residues. Some, um, oftentimes, uh, let's take an example. Uh, UPM is uh, producing uh, renewable diesel, uh, advanced renewable diesel and NAFTA from crude toll oil, which is a residue of pulp manufacturing from our own and some external pulp mills. Uh, nobody delir- deliberately produces it, it's a, it's a residue of the process we have companies um, like clariant um, in our coalition which has just now started up a new uh, biorefinery in romania producing uh, lignocellulosic ethanol from agricultural residues we have enerchem which is uh, looking at investments in both spain and the netherlands on uh, biogenic fraction of the municipal solid waste um, so we're li- really looking at the circular economy. We're looking at not uh, at, at, at creating value from residues and waste. And this is at the core, and that's why we have the annex that defines these feedstock that are considered to be uh, safe and sound from that perspective. Um, so that would be my answer. Thank you very
0: much. Um, As I mentioned, I'd now like to talk about Refuel EU Aviation, which, of of course, is the EU's uh, green uh, jet fuel law. Um, So this will soon... There's already uh, trilogues set to get underway on Thursday. Um, Byrne, maybe I can ask you, um, was it a mistake not to include a sub-mandate for advanced biofuels? I'm talking about Part A of Annex 9 in Refuel EU. And if it wasn't a mistake, what was the thinking behind... Not
1: including a mandate. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm working for TGNR, and the um, so I'm it's a bit limited what can, what I can say about that. But generally, we consider that we need to kind of a strike a balance: what to include under Refuel EU and what not to include. And we uh, we did decided not to include first generation biofuels because not we didn't want to have a, a, a new market. But on the other hand, we have. Annex nine, which are waste-based or mostly waste-based feedstocks, where we really have uh, a policy to um, to push for that. And aviation is a sector where we have um, yeah a future-proof demand for for you know, so it's a priority to have the these biofuels in aviation. And therefore, uh, we consider it's it's a good place to have both advanced and um and uh, also annex nine part b biofuels in in the in the mandate and it would have simply increased then the um the complexity then to have another sub sub target within a kind of a sub target so one has to strike the right balance there and on top of that we thought that if we have then in the renewable energy directive uh, a general framework which provides further incentives um, to pr- produce particularly advanced biofuels with the sub-application there which also has to be met um, and to which the biofuels used in aviation count and then then a, a specific um, multiplier for the counting of those. This together would provide the right incentives to to bring also advanced biofuels specifically in, in the aviation sector.
0: Mm-hmm. Marco, um, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard.
5: Uh, Well, I I think the statement on not creating complexity was uh, maybe contradictory. But really what we're looking at is investment certainty. Uh, The Commission has made a proposal uh, which is pretty much accepted by the co legislators on banning the sale of uh, internal combustion engine cars by 2035 that is sending a really strong message um, to the industry. Uh, and it's obviously sends a question that whether you are investing in that sector or some other sector. And if you, you then you need to look at the transport modes and the end segments that you can produce from your biorefinery, um, uh, advanced biofuel biorefinery. It's quite obvious that maritime and and the aviation sector together with heavy duty uh, will be the main sectors in the future together with obviously whether it's bioplastics or bio petrochemical biomaterials Um, but what we actually are calling for as as the advanced biofuels coalition when we say that we would like to see a dedicated mandate it's really about investment certainty that you can Explain that there is this room for your products. We know that we are accepted within the definitions today, but to really create an incentive to fill that mandate would be quite important. Because the, advan- the, the refuel aviation is quite special in the sense that it goes all the way up to 2050, and that's a really important signal, definitely, to the. Industry, so we salute definitely the 2050 perspective here because that is needed. Uh, maybe a longer perspective would be possible within red as well, um, but that's a, that's a good thing, and that's what we that's why we did it. Uh, that's why we're calling for a specific mandate, really, to create the the stronger in, in incentive to to invest. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to take a kind of a step
0: back um, and just when I mean, we're talking about specific inclusion of certain feedstocks um, and what is eligible and what's not. And there's a lot of discussion about um, the sustainability of, of these feedstocks. Um, but this is somewhat surprising because surely it's a scientific question, what is sustainable and what isn't. But um, we, we hear information from, s- from some NGOs. We hear information from industry. There seems to be a lot of um, differing views on, on the sustainability. Um, maybe I can ask you, Anne. Um, what do you think? Why do we see such differing uh, interpretations of what feedstock is sustainable and what isn't from NGOs and industry, in your opinion?
4: Uh, well, one answer is uh, what I stated previously on um, basically the different value chains and the different situations in the different countries where we use different biofuels um back in 2018 2019 the Norwegian market was basically just crude bio- biofuels unintendedly and luckily that is not the case anymore uh while other countries had a very different situation but I also think um another uh, another explanation is the system boundaries uh, we're not really discussing uh, the same uh, the same system boundaries uh And to solve that, we need to have uh, criteria in other sectors as well, because there are indirect effects of biofuels, but those effects should be treated directly in the sectors uh, uh, where they are uh, happening. So I I think those system boundaries and and what's actually the base of the discussion is also a big part of the uh, problem.
0: Thank you. Um, Carlo, I'd like to ask you the same question. Why is there this uh, scientific debate over what's sustainable and what isn't in terms of feedstocks?
3: Yeah, I'm, um, I agree with Anna that actually all these indirect effects should primarily be addressed in the sectors where they occur. And uh, so, we, if if you would have uh, much less deforestation and no expansion into peatlands, the Globium study, that's the main uh, ILUC study, show that uh, I becomes virtually uh, uh, in existing uh, so it will it will cease to exist there will not be any really measurable or mon- modelable ILUC impact if if those if there would be no deforestation and no expansion of agricultural land in uh, in, in, in peatland um, so while we are having very strict Requirements on the sustainability of biofuels, and these have been negotiated and discussed with uh, with the NGOs at the table and with industry, etc. Um, uh, and, and maybe they could be stricter on some aspects. I don't know. Uh, that uh, we would like to understand what is the real problem. Um, but then um, I think it's problematic that uh, while you're making this strict sustainability framework for one sector, that you're holding that same sector responsible. For uh, for other sectors, not addressing for failing to uh, address the same uh, uh, sustainability issues. So that is, uh, yeah, that I suppose that is a dilemma. Uh, I think that um, uh, well, going back to my my earlier statement, climate change is the most urgent uh, thing here, and so we need to make sure that we yeah, that that we have good requirements. That we, but that we at the same time also increase uh, the demand. and uh, I, I think that can go hand in hand with. Uh, um, yeah, with, with increasing sustainability, uh, both on uh, r- with requirements at the point where the biofuels are entering the market, setting the certification requirements, et cetera, as well as having more strict uh, rules on the agricultural practices, for example, in European countries. And that happens also at the moment. Mm,
0: thank you, that's interesting. Um, maybe just in terms of what we consider sustainable, um, in terms of the Renewable Energy Directive update, and uh, Niels, maybe I can ask you. So the original proposal from the rapporteur, uh, MEP Marcus Pieper, of the EPP group, it had a 5% advanced biofuels mandate, um, but this was diluted. Uh, why was the 5% target watered down, do you know?
2: Because we didn't find a majority. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the usual reason in, in the parliament. If you don't find a majority for something, then we, we need a point of view for, for the trialogue. log. So, so therefore, uh, in this situation, there was no majority, uh, feasible majority for this issue. And, and you could actually illustrate it by going through uh, the pellets market. Because the pellets market is actually, <coughs> from uh, many perspectives, quite interesting. We don't, we don't know how sustainable the, the pellet market is. Because some of it comes from Canada, some of it comes from from the U.S., some of it comes from uh, member states where uh, the control over what's going on in the in the forest is sort of slightly smallish, to be nice, uh, in comparison with. Uh, Finland and Sweden, where we almost, the only thing we haven't done so far, we haven't given separate names to the different trees in the forest because it's, we know very, very clearly what kind of forest you have. Uh, so you can't actually do anything in that forest without that b- being noted. Uh, there are some mistakes t- with big uh, headlines i think one in sweden in 10 years but but the problem is that a pellet is something very different in different circumstances so how do you phrase a sustainability criteria for for pellets when you don't know from where they come and and uh, for what uh, purpose they are used if they are used in a in a in a co uh, system producing Electricity and 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 uh, heat for for in a in a, a closed system with, with the district heating. It's one thing. It's if it's burned in an apartment in in Brussels. It's a totally different thing. So, sustainability criteria are
3: pretty problematic. Uh,
0: Carlo, yeah, go ahead. Uh,
3: I fail to understand it completely because I think at uh, the moment where the biomass is being used uh, in the permitting of the factories, uh, there should be rules to the emissions that these have. If biomass would be used in a city environment, I don't know if that happens anywhere in Europe, but maybe it does, then I suppose you should also set requirements to the emissions and also to the furnaces in the houses. Yes, of course, uh, but uh, I, I, I don't understand how you would... Use those arguments to basically limit the option why not if you know what is the sustainability issue? if you know what is the concern, why not make a clear rule uh, and if, if, if the concern relates to the feedstock production, make a rule there if, uh, and, and then you can address basically the supply chain. If the concern relates to the end user, then I think you should set a requirement either to the vehicle or to the the, the combustion installation etc. Yeah, I'm not a politician. So for me, uh, it's it's more simple. I'm I'm not bound to uh the emotions per se here, uh but I I find it difficult. I th- I think that you could do it much less complex in a way.
0: Thank you. Um I do want to take another question from the floor. This was the the most upvoted. It's from Emmanuel from Sepsa. Um Regulatory certainty is key to unlock investment decisions to Bernd. When can we expect the update of Annex 9 list of feedstock, including part A, qualifying for the advanced biofuel sub-target?
1: Well, we're working on this, and, um, well, this is, we are finalizing it, and we hope that we can, over the next week, uh, publish uh, a draft. Uh, But, yeah, still work, uh, some work is necessary.
5: Uh, Marco, I believe you want to comment. Yeah, I think this is a really important issue. Also, the ITRE committee of the European Parliament has made a call for, uh, in case there is a revision and new fee stock are included into Annex 9 part A, that there would be a subsequent uh, consideration of, of increasing the mandate. Um, and, and this is this is really important. And I think, therefore, it would be important to have the delegated act published in time for the trial because that's the only moment you can actually increase the, uh, the mandate, unless you want to have read for soon after, uh, which is probably not the case. And therefore, uh, we really call for urgent action. So this could be done in the trial logs. Um, there's a lot of talk about for the need to increase ambition, there's a lot of talk about uh, decreasing our dependence, so now's the momentum in the trilogues, and we have high hopes for these discussions. Thank you. Um, well, I'm actually curious, Neil, just
0: while you're here, um, regarding the trilogues, there's been uh, discussion. If we fast forward for the Renewable Energy Directive trilogue, what, where do you see the sticking points between the Council and the Parliament? What will be the most difficult topics to get an agreement on, in your opinion?
2: Well, I think most uh, or a lot of member states uh, feel the pressure from the energy market of today. If you look at the price of gas for the moment being skyrocketing, why? Uh, Because of uh, actually Germany buying a lot of gas after, was it uh, July 23rd, when they sort of said this is the second phase of, of the alarm? Well, and then you see the curve going up, and that's hurting uh, a lot of of member states quite a lot. So uh, finding solutions where we can see that we are able to keep uh, the price at some normal, close to normal (laughs) level, uh, that will be uh, one of the seeking points. And then uh, just to come back to the annex issue, I think the wisdom of the politicians uh, was not to put their fingers into the Annex 9. Uh, because then I think we would be caught with our fingers in the honey. Uh, and and that would be good. We weren't, I don't think we had, could have the wisdom to go into the Annex 9 and then vote what is a, a good uh, feedstock for, for anything. There. So I think we had some, some sense of reality in the, those seconds. Um, Marco, would you no, like to comment? A
5: good f- decision, i uh, fully supported. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> no, not the only one. Um,
0: well, I mean, I, I'm looking at the time, we are coming towards the close of our event, but um, I would like to ask you, I mean, maybe, Carlo, this is relevant for you. So, I mean, we're in an extraordinarily difficult moment in terms of the energy system. I mean, people are worried about how they're going to fuel their car, how they're going to heat their homes. Um, you mentioned that uh, you see much more scope for advanced biofuels than perhaps others have said. But can I ask, what effect would increasing the level of advanced biofuels in the energy and fuel mix have? Would it exacerbate or calm the energy price crisis, in your opinion?
3: Uh, I think that uh, you could scale it up within a few years huh? because the technology is there, the potential is there. And then if you would really go to a significant scale, it could have an impact. And I think that it would calm down the prices. It would give us much more diversity in sources. Um, if, if we're talking just about the 2.2%, I don't think that is really uh, going to uh, to make a significant uh, difference. Uh, I don't think you will see that. So, uh, And actually even, yeah, I understand that in the parliament, uh, you've been talk- discussing 5%. But if we see that the potential is maybe 30 uh, percent and sustainable, then um, yeah, I, I don't see why we yeah, should not introduce this, uh, this form. It would give an, an additional uh, yeah, volume of, of fuels on the market, and, uh, and it would, over time, really replace uh, fossil fuels and, and so bring yeah. And of course, um, renewable comes at a cost. Uh, but the costs are really lower than what we're paying today for uh, for the gas.
0: Well, thank you. Um, I mean, looking at the time, we are coming to the close, but before we go, I would like to ask each of our panelists um, to give some closing remarks. So I'd ask you just to give a uh, literally one sentence summation of what you think is the most important aspect to keep in mind from today's debate. And uh, maybe Bernd, I would start with you, put you in the hot chair.
1: Well, I, I, I think... What's the most important is to take into account that we have a very complex situation and um, we need to find um, a policy response to that which takes, on the one hand side, the, the complexity into account but is, on the other hand, also long-living and uh, clear enough to, to, for, for everybody to agree and to make them the necessary steps.
0: Thank you. Um, Niels, I'll give you the floor for your closing
2: remarks. Well, there is a lot of hype about hydrogen in the future. Uh, I said at some point that I don't think we have it uh, in a, on an industrial scale uh, to before 2035. But what we have today is a change of C in, in price relations. And therefore, what the Marco said before about A perspective for investments, uh, that's what we need, and we can do it. And we need to do it because otherwise, we will be in a pocket of a certain guy in Moscow, and we
3: wouldn't probably be like to be in that pocket.
2: Thank you. Uh,
0: Carlo, your closing remarks, please.
3: Yeah, so indeed, I think we need uh, the perspective for a longer term. So, um, not just having 2030 and then not know what is behind it. I think that policymakers, uh, the European Commission has perfect scenarios on the total volumes of renewable fuels that will be needed in the coming decades. And I think that should be much more advertised and that also then you see how is the policy uh, positioned in that, uh, what are the, the typical fuels that we need, when when will the, the volumes grow, but also maybe what will happen after that. So what will be the next strategy? So I, I would hope for more uh, vision. I know there is a lot of vision, but specifically in this topic, I think we we can use a bit more.
0: Thank you. Um, now, Anne, um, I'll give you the floor for your closing remarks.
4: Yes, thank you. Uh, well, I think that uh, in order to reduce the use of fossil fuels uh, in the scale that we need, we need to go for all. Uh, all renewable solutions and that advanced biofuels is one of those solutions that will be important to reduce emissions and that the most important regarding biofuels is also to assess it in a a broader perspective um yeah to also solve the sustainability issues we are seeing in other other sectors
0: thank you and mark i'll give you the final intervention
5: Thank you. I think this debate should be seen in a broader context than just just advanced biofuels. It's really about how do we approach the solutions that we have. And, and, and while I'm extremely excited about the figures that Carl has mentioned here and that we believe in as well, um, we can start now by really looking at what is feasible and sustainable. What do we have? What are the means that we can use in the short term, uh, and 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 then we will have new technologies, uh, new opportunities developing. But I think the core is really how do we boost green growth? How will, how do we overcome? How do we overcome the challenges that we have? And let's not look always further ahead. Let's look at the means that we have. Where we have the infrastructure where we have the feedstock, where we have the technologies, where we can really start making a change. And that would be my final statement.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Um, Well, that brings us to the close of today's conference, but I would like to thank all of our panelists. Um, I'd like to thank you uh, watching at home or from the office. Um, And of course, thank you to those who joined us in person as well. Um, I believe if you want to watch this conference back, it will soon be online on the interactive YouTube channel. Uh, But that's all from us here at the Reactive Studio in Brussels. But in the meantime, take care, stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.